Hello, everyone. This is Cassie Burns, co-founder of All Your Data. I'm an attorney who's been using AI and machine learning for 10 years. I love data and love talking to people about data, and that's what this podcast is about. Each episode of Cassie and will feature a new guest. Each guest comes from a different background with a different approach and attitude towards technology. We'll talk about their experiences and hopefully we'll learn a thing or two. Thanks for joining. Let's get started with Cassie and John Rowe. John, thank you so much for joining us here today. John Rowe, everyone. Thank you. So, John, you are CEO and president of, of Pinpoint Labs, and we've known each other for mm, about a year and a half, and we really met mm -hmm. in the world that's maybe not as cool now, but we met in the metaverse because yeah, we were very interested in the metaverse, mm -hmm. and we met through, I think, our friend Jerry. We have a lot of friends in common. Jerry Bowie was talking to you about metaverse and forensics, and he was talking to me about metaverse and a bunch of things. And mm -hmm. we actually, I think through Pinpoint Labs, uh, we tested out a VR environment and and played around with it from a forensic perspective, right? Yeah, absolutely. We got our Oculus headsets and had some fun in the, the uh, Meta Horizon workroom. Our meeting room be our meeting room so and i thought i think we had a good time i thought it was fun so yeah and it was my first time in a vr environment jerry actually let me borrow a headset mm -hmm. i didn't have one mm -hmm. i'm very spatially challenged and i'm always a little cautious with those kinds of devices but i really enjoyed it a lot more than i thought i would it was i like the immersiveness of it mm -hmm. You really are focused on the yeah. people in the world. So now you are forensics. Tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do in the world of forensics. I'm the CEO and founder of Pinpoint Labs, and we started off as a digital forensics uh, company, right? So doing collections, investigations, things like that. I have a background in e-discovery and have been in the industry for a while. And so when I started Pinpoint, that as a growing market within the litigation tech space, wanted to be a part of that process, right? So went out, got the appropriate certifications, and because of my connections uh, with law firms and service bureaus through the years, I was able to, we were able to start landing projects pretty quick. And I had another gentleman who joined me uh, about a month or two after I started the company who also got certified. And so we both went out and started traveling around and doing investigations and collections. Both of us have a software development background, and so what happened was as we were doing these collections, especially within the e-discovery space, we realized that there weren't good, easy to use, forgiving e-discovery collection tools, right? In our frustration along the way of, of those situations where you weren't just needing to image a hard drive, where you need to collect large amounts of data off of networks and local machines, we wanted to build tools that were applied forensic disciplines to what we call logical file collections, right? So, or those collections that are more of an e-discovery nature, right? So we earned our stripes out there doing uh, the hard work of doing typical forensic investigations. But along the way, we found just this gap on the e-discovery side where people are just plugging in flash drives, dragging and dropping files and not, you know, have, they don't have a chain of custody. They don't have a log. They didn't have any way of being able to verify the, the evidence they collected was um, 
was accurate, right? So, so then we started building the tools and evolved into a software company from those initial forensic services. And for people who don't know, chain of custody, that validation, that provenance is very important in litigation or investigations because you're proving that mm -hmm. it is a valid document. It's not a created document. So I do, before we go back to the, the, the topic of the metaverse, I know you have another side hobby that mm -hmm. has to do with fire. So can you talk about that a little bit? Do you mind indulging me? Oh, Maribel must have been uh, put a bug in your ear on that yes. one, Yes, right? yes. <laughs> yeah, so several years ago, I don't know, four or five years ago, I got into blacksmithing, knife making, and I have a shop. We live on some acreage, and I, I don't know, maybe it's because I was a pyro when I was a kid, so I just like lighting things on fire in general. <laughs> I mean, I go crazy with the fireworks around the house. I grew up, our kids shooting fireworks. My wife hates them. She absolutely despises them. But so I think between loving to work with metal and shape metal and my obsession with being around hot things. Yeah. And so I started making knives and other metal works. And I actually have a Instagram account, Cutting Away Hunger. And so I had, I was just doing it for fun at first, but I'm posting these pictures on like Facebook and I have friends back from Kansas City. I grew up in you know the Kansas City area, a huge Chiefs fan. So I was making these Chief knives, and people are like, I want to buy that. I want one. And so I just started making them for other people when I had time, and, and then just give all the money to either a local food bank or if somebody has a food bank or other charity. So I just do it for fun, just, just to get away from the bits and the bites. So there's nothing like going out in the shop and just getting away from the computers, as I'm sure you can relate. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to look into that and get my husband with, I'd love to get that for my husband for birthday or Christmas gift. And sure. he actually loves watching YouTube videos of people forging knives. He has made a point mm -hmm. of showing some of them to me. So if you ever decide you want to spin up a YouTube channel, let me know. I will pass that on to him if you don't already have it, because he, he would love watching that. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to talk to him. There's a great show on the History Channel called Forge and Fire. So it's, I think that's kind of what revitalized the art in general was people watching that and going, hey, I want to try that. Mm -hmm. So I have a full, essentially a full shop of all the fun tools and toys out there. And that's what I do when I'm not in here doing the techie stuff. So it's a lot of right. fun. And you are someone who likes to explore and test things out. As I said earlier, we met through largely testing out the metaverse. And I know whenever we were talking, we were just very interested in not just seeing what that environment was like, but what forensic artifacts, what information could get pulled from that VR experience. And can you talk a little bit about what you were able to uncover in your analysis? Yeah, I mean, it was great timing with you and me and, and Jerry getting together because I'd got a headset and our head developer, like I said, it was there shortly after we started the company. We thought this was really interesting. We also bought some AR headsets. They're called X-Real headsets, right? Some augmented reality headsets and looked at those. What we found out, what we wanted to do when we got together, me and Jerry were to go, okay, what is left behind? Because as, especially on the tail of COVID, not that it's gone, obviously, but when everybody was locked down, we thought, well, more and more of these VR meetings may potentially be happening in the future, right? And everything was about the metaverse. 
And so we dove in. And what I did is just take a typical forensic approach uh, investigatively and said, okay, first I want to get a snapshot of what's on the VR headset, right? We had the Oculus, the Meta Oculus 2. And so what I did is I essentially copied all the files off of the headset, made a, and during that process, I got a complete file list and hashed, essentially hashed all the files, right? So we essentially had a set of the files before we had our meetings and then after we had our meetings. And so I snapshotted both of those and did a differential, which is basically what's new or what's been changed. And in looking at those logs and those files from the meetings that we had within the Horizon Workroom was able to look at, is there anything here of investigative value? And I also went to the portal. There's a portal where you set up those meetings. It has information in it about users and things like that. So it's trying to see, could we tie any of the activity in the portal to the logs that I found on the headset, right? And so there was some interesting information that was on there. You know, some of the things were, for, for one, there was a log created for each one of the meetings that we had that was date and time stamped, right, of what time the meeting was. Within the log, there was a reference to the meeting room that we were in and some helpful information about the duration and things like that, right? Within the logs, there were also references to user IDs, but I never found that there was information that tied our user IDs, like you, me, and Jerry, as we entered a room or exited, whatever. It never tied to a real name, right? It never tied to, you know, a, a meta name or a Horizon Workroom name. We unfortunately couldn't make that connection. But what we could do is essentially I saw some information about, you know, I was sharing my laptop in the session. So there was mm -hmm. a reference. It was a reference to the my laptop's name because of the RDP session, right? They got created from me sharing that laptop. So I thought well, that was actually pretty helpful. That could be in an investigation, help potentially tie somebody to the system who was running it. And then within the actual portal, some of the things that we found were, you could see the list of people in the Horizon portal that were invited to the room or removed from a room, but there wasn't any logs related to if they actually entered or exited the room, right? So what that could do, of course, is potentially expand, let's say you looked at one person's headset, right? And you investigated and you saw they were in this room and then you got the login for the, for the portal. You could expand your search, right? You could find other people that were potentially going going to be in that room, people who were added or removed. So, I don't know. What are your thoughts on something like like something like that? Would it That's be helpful or not helpful? I would be very interested to know who was removed because it, that sounds like it's the host is forcing someone out as opposed to someone getting yeah. invited, yeah. right? And I show up. So the three of us got invited. We all showed up though on our own at different times. And then we all left at different times. But if one of us, it sounds like the invitation was logged, but not necessarily if we showed up and when we showed up. But right. if you got removed, which I assume again, that's an action by the host. I would right. that would be interesting to me. I would because I feel like that's something someone had to have done something to ne necessitate the removal. No, that's a good point. So I thought that was there's weird. It's like this chat log where it almost looks like looked like 
someone's typing into it and it was just the system literally logging oh this person was added oh this person was removed the thing i didn't see is when we actually joined right the history mm -hmm. of the history of each one of us when we went when we went into that room we there wasn't anything you know specific enough to to log that but like i said it could expand and to your point why were they removed or why were they added? So it could provide some kind of initial hit list, right? In the sense of who else would you go talk to? What other headsets would you potentially acquire, you know, try mm -hmm. to, you know, try to examine? So those were the things in the portal. And then I imagine that, you know, one of the challenges I see are going to be the thing you have to go through to get files of so that I could use a separate application to copy the files from the headset. I had to turn on developer access. I had to know the password for my phone. It's also tied to your permissions on your mobile device, right? Which is what authenticates you for the headset. So although any person could pick up the headset, and this is a challenge we have in digital forensics in general, is who was sitting at the keyboard, right? Who was at the keyboard? How do we prove that that person was actually at that computer and did that thing? Headsets are even, that would be, I imagine, more difficult because there isn't a pin or password just to put the headset on. If you remember, right, you didn't have to put in a pin or password to jump into, to turn on the Oculus, to get in the, to get in the workroom. Once all that stuff's set up, it happens pretty quick. So what do we think about how much harder it could even be to put someone in a headset doing an action over them sitting in it? At least at a computer, you had to put in a password. At some point, you could argue, well, they had to know the password, you know, right. to get into the system. So what? how do we know that, oh, it's not the roommate, it's not a spouse, it's not somebody who just said, I want to play around, right? Have you played around with collecting metadata since? Because we tested this out. This is like maybe a year and a half ago, and which is an age in the world of emerging technology. Do you think that more artifacts are, are available or potentially going to be available? For example, you can high five someone or you can, if someone yeah. like tries to talk to yeah. you or engage with you in any way. Well, and I checked that out because, you know, that came up in our meeting where we wanted to know if any kind of physical contact was made. So we were mm -hmm. high-fiving each other mm -hmm. because some of the cases that are coming up are inappropriate people being out in some VR social area or somebody, uh, they just feel uncomfortable. They feel like they were violated in some way. And there wasn't anything related to our physical interactions. When we were high-fiving each other, I couldn't, really find anything that was related to that and you know when i went i did go into an additional room you and jerry weren't there but i was like i'm gonna go try out a different meeting vr room and check the metadata so i went into spatial and they have vr meeting rooms and places you can go and like interact and uh do rec room stuff and whatever it was even less than horizon i did the same thing where i made a snapshot of the Oculus before and after, check the logs. About the only thing useful was that it created a log like the like in Horizon each time I went into a meeting, right? Or each time I entered the application or logged in. But there wasn't anything that was the equivalent of like Horizon where it tracked the meeting room and it gave like 
other information related to that? There wasn't anything. So I venture to guess that someone would need to go in and do extensive review of all these different platforms. And like you said, as they change over time, like currently, is it any better? Is there any more metadata? Mm -hmm. But but I, I think a lot of the information is going to be on the server. I, I just think it's going to be encrypted on a server somewhere, the stuff that we would find really useful. So it'd be a matter of, can we get to that at the end of the right. day? And that would be a server, not an individual person's server, but the provider of the VR yeah. space's server, right? right. So, like, like the cloud space, right? Whoever's in charge of hosting that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now, I think that, that would have to come into play at some point. Now, I know that VR is not your only interest regarding emerging technologies. As I recall, you have done some digging into... The ability to identify whether or not an output or content is created by generative AI, because part of the dialogue, I think, in 2023, were people or groups popping up and saying, oh, this software will detect it. This software will, it won't. And based off of a lot of things I've read, it's very difficult to identify and track in a lot of ways, just like a single mm -hmm. tool that can do it. So right. what did you find in that investigative process? Right. It's, uh, yeah, as you said, with everybody bringing it up in the different posts, I just dove in. I ended up reviewing 14 different AI content generation engines that claimed that they could detect AI-generated content. And basically the results were that essentially 10 of them failed immediately. Like, I gave it 100% AI generated content and it's, it's 20% or low probability. And this is like a thousand words straight out of GPT or BARD. And I mean, I've been a, a GPT pro user since it was available and also use BARD and on almost a daily basis for different things. But so I was taking information out of GPT and BARD and I was feeding it to these engines and there was a big group of them that just fell off immediately. Like I 100% AI, it was like, like I said, low probability or it was giving it a 20% confidence level. And on the other side, giving it 100% human written stuff, it was like, uh, maybe, you know, I mean, it's just, it wasn't. And I also created documents that were a hybrid, right? They were a mixture of, uh, I would take something out of GPT and then add. So it was half, half human, half uh, generative AI. And so what I found were there were four applications that were head and shoulders above the others. And those were, I don't know if you want me to put it in a document or, or mention it on here. Yeah, go ahead and mention it. Yeah, I'd love to hear. Yeah, go ahead and share it. Yeah. And so the ones that stood out were by, one's called Hive Moderation. That's at my top of my list. And I'll tell you why in a minute. There's Winston AI, Originality AI, and Crossplag, which is C-R-O-S-S-P-L-A-G. The reason those stood out is they all survived the 100% AI, 100% human, the mixture. They all were getting a sense of what I was doing. They were, like I said, head and shoulders above the other stuff that's out there. And then... High moderation was the best, and I'll tell you why, is I learned that you could put a GPT prompt in a certain way, and you could say, I could take an output from GPT, and I said, elevate the previous response by employing literary language. 
Well, it switched up my GPT output, and we're talking 100% GPT output, in a way that it threw three of the four off. And they thought, all of a sudden, this is primarily human content. Now, I'd be interested, you know, in your feedback, is, is it just flowered it up and changed the language in a way <laughs> over GPT's primary, I guess, output structure it uses? And it did throw three of the four off, but how often would somebody do that, you think, in real life is go, well, I'm going to apply this extra criteria to this prompt. And I, I mean, that's pretty interesting, right? I, you know, I think if it keeps someone from writing a whole article, they may do it. I think people get smart and they, I I had um, in a, my first episode, actually, I had my college roommate as a guest, and she is an English professor, and she's dean of graduate studies. And she said, you know, people have always cheated. You don't need technology to cheat. It just makes it a little bit easier. I think if someone wants to use it for cheating purposes in the context of writing for college, I think they'll figure that stuff out. And it's interesting that little bitty like slight refinement was enough to, throw, to throw them off, which it does kind of make you think that there's a rhythm to the standard Do output that. if you just take the right. first first output. I mean, and I think we all I, and everything I've read, it sounds like everything you tested was focused on text based outputs. Is that correct? No, I have a fun surprise for you. I have a present. Oh. Oh, okay. I have an All Easter, right. I have, an I have an Easter egg for you that is image-based. So, Oh, very excited to hear that. So, But on the text, everything I've read has said the text-based detection is much more difficult than image-based detection. Um, though, though, I don't know, you know, how much, how much of it is, is if people don't take the extra effort to, A, like validate it, if they're just copy and pasting it and they're not even changing anything, it makes me think they're not maybe even validating it, you know, tweaking the language. Uh, it, it can be a little awkward. I play around with it. I'm like, oh, that's definitely not something I would write. Let me change that. And I've written mm -hmm. quite a bit. Yeah. It tends to use certain words or certain, it uses the word delve a lot. It uses, I think, yeah, superfluous. Yeah, it uses superfluous, you know, adjectives and stuff like that. So I think that, like, Things kind of have a vibe, and maybe an algorithm isn't as good as detecting that as a human, but that doesn't mean they won't get better. Well, you know what I thought might throw it off is uh, Grammarly hates GPT output. I don't know that it hates Interesting. it. Interesting. If, if you take something straight out of GPT and, you know, Grammarly will chop it up like you're a, you know, like a college student in your first comp class because, <laughs> because, uh, because I have Grammarly plugged into you know, I'm lazy and I have Grammarly plugged into everything I use, you know, whether it's emails or document creation, web stuff, whatever. And so if you take something out of GPT and you put it in a Google Doc or Word Doc, whatever, and Grammarly starts chewing through it, it it read, <laughs> it marks up quite a bit of stuff. So I thought, well, you know what I'm going to do is take an output from GPT and let Grammarly do its thing because it changes enough of it sometimes. I thought maybe that'll throw it off. Well, it, it didn't seem to make much, much difference. And 
only again once so i you know i thought just the grammarly tweaks changed the structure and the syncopation enough and the ones that were doing well that didn't throw it off sending it through grammarly and even tweaking half of a paragraph here or there they were still on to something i don't know it was detecting the ones that were actually doing well didn't care about stuff like that or even like the 50 50 docs they were like they pretty much na nailed like kind of the percentage of probability of what was human, what was AI. The one that survived all of that is called Hive Moderation. And I know you will go there because of your the Easter egg is one of the engines they have is an image, a generative AI image detection. And it can detect mid-journey and fusion. What's the third one? I just had a brain. Stable, it's stable diffusion. Stable diffusion, right? Mm -hmm. so, so I gave it images. Okay, again, it's called Hive Moderation. I'm not associated with them in any way. <laughs> I was just insanely impressed that I could not do anything to throw it. You know, when it came to detecting generative AI content, you know, 100% human or hybrid, right? Then I found they also had a tool on their website where you could put in an image. So think of it as generative ai it could be a piece of art or a uh, person you know some of this ai looks the people look real i mean they look like there was a photograph taken but it's not an actual person and it was able to nail those as well so in hive moderation it was doing text right generative text output but also images related to those three applications it could detect whether they were they were artificial or not and again, I didn't put thousands through it. You know, I grabbed a dozen from different sources offline. It's not the most exhaustive review, but I was impressed enough with the stuff I gave it to say, hey, these people are doing, so I don't know what kind of tech they've got over there that nobody else has or what their scientists are doing, but they definitely knocked it out of the park when it came to the the generative text detection as well as the uh, the image, the generative image detection. You know, I'm going to give you a tell in case anyone ever want. Usually I will disclose if I use generative AI image or if I heavily use generative AI in my in my text, which I tend to not really use. I use it more to play around with. I used it in the email to you, the the, the podcast email. You probably picked up on that. Uh, but I tell on any of the images I play around with Remedy and and some of the others. My hair always looks so perfect and smooth and so styled, mm -hmm. and that is never me in real life. So mm -hmm. if there's ever any doubt for me, look at the hair. If it if it's looking a little look bit too good, look at the hair. Yeah, it's it's not me if it looks really good. So <laughs> no, that's awesome. I do have a I do have a question for you. Actually, just mm -hmm. I'm curious. Do we think that, okay, so I would consider the type of documents I was submitting as unstructured text, right? And the sense of it's just free flow writing. Do we think that when we get into actual legal agreements, right, where you're using more templated language, right? Kind of think of, you know, generative AI as an advanced document creator, right? If you're wanting mm -hmm. to drop a legal agreement or something like that. The one thing I would like to put through it, and I haven't yet, is taking like a standard NDA or MNDA or whatever, some type of business contracts that are typically certain, you know, there's certain standard language, right? There's certain template languages. Do you think that we could throw it off more? Because 
in a way it's mm. not it's not originally created content right if gpt or bard is just kicking out you know stuff it knows right because right there's that boilerplate aspect of it versus yeah. like a persuasive document or or a yeah, yeah article is is more you know i don't want to say stream of consciousness i don't know that that would be that would be interesting to test i think i feel like i feel like that would be a hard something that could stump it i, I could see it as as having not played around with these GAI detection tools like you have, I could see that being an area of, because honestly, what happens is you, you create a repository of clauses that you like, you know, often companies right. will right. have their, their templates mm -hmm. or a transactional attorney will have their little repository of, oh, I like the language from that clause and that contract. And I like it in this context. So we're kind of already doing that. We're curating the language that we like to copy paste maybe slightly edit so i could see that being maybe maybe less useful you know and i, I think that in the context of generative ai maybe that would be a tool to to flat where i could see analysis of contracts like that would be like where are the anomalies in these contracts compared you know to our standards so i don't know where you would maybe be as concerned about copying in, yeah, yeah. yeah, or is this outside of what we would normally agree with? That, that that's a completely different analysis. You know that that's kind of like issue flagging versus did a machine make this or did a human make this? So, well, what do you think are the most common areas that generative AI would be used or questioned? You know, we we hear about the false sightings and all this stuff about people using it and whether they should or not, whatever. But where do you see the most common use of needing to determine in a case, in a matter, if somebody used it or not? Like, where where do you think some of those areas are going to show up to where you might have to have, we'll have experts one day that know about the detection tools, know about the creation tools, and have some way of weighing in from an expert standpoint, where do you where do you think that might come from? I think when the the focus of who created it, was it a human or machine, is important. And an, an obvious area is copyright. Right now, copyright offices are not granting copyright mm. protection of anything created by a machine. E even people who really work at those Dolly prompts or mid-journey prompts, they're saying, mm -mm, that's not it. it. At the end of the day, like you had no idea exactly what that was going to come out out of that machine. So you didn't have mm -hmm. enough control over a, of it. You can claim copyright protection over or get copyright protection over a compilation, but not the individual images created by those tools. Okay. So I could see potentially hypothesizing, let's say, you're accused of copyright infringement. A potential defense people may use is, especially if the work is like a dig heavily digitive, digital medium, you can say, well, my defense is it shouldn't have been protected by copyright anyway because it's uh, created by generative AI. And so it doesn't right. deserve any protection. Um, so I, I could see that potentially being an issue, maybe in from a relevancy standpoint, maybe in the context of maybe 
corporate espionage or someone leaving and stealing proprietary information mm-hmm. for them to be able to prove, well, I actually you know, wrote this myself. I didn't, of course, you can still copy without okay. generative Right. So, and I think the other way it's going to come up is not so much in the actual relevancy to the legal issues, but as to validation and verification whenever someone's on the stand and maybe they're asked about a document or maybe in a deposition and they're like, oh, I don't know. I didn't, I used GAI to write most of that. I don't really, I don't really remember writing that. So I could see that as a way to create a little bit of, you know. Yeah. But but I think to your question, overall, knowing at the artifact, you know, sub document level, what was created by generative AI and what was created by human, my my inclination is to think it's not going to be an extremely key element in most cases. Because if you think about it, you don't even in a contract dispute, you don't go, Well, okay, person, let me know, attorney. What were all of your sources? And maybe you do. And maybe you say, what were your, all your sources? Usually it's just like the interplay of the contracts back and it's forth, the conversation. Yeah. You don't, I yeah. mean, I think a comparable, which I it, I don't want to like dwell on this because I know it's caused confusion before for some people with Mata Villabianca yeah. being an example, but you don't go, well, let's go pull their search history and see what sort of searching they did online or, or you know, to maybe find right. other clauses or anything. So I think that, there may be some people over-focusing on it in some ways. Um, I think it will be important, though, in the context of copyrights in particular. No, I appreciate that. I was looking forward to this uh, meeting so I could get a couple of these questions out, actually, too, to get your <laughs> perspective. You, I think you find it interesting. You were talking about you know, plagiarism and, and papers, that several of these generative AI detection engines are combined with uh plagiarism scams right so you'll put this information in and it's not only searching for trying to determine if it's generative ai but you have a little option on the side where it'll start searching through various articles search do an internet search and it's basically combining uh anywhere this information has potentially been brought from which is kind of interesting because some of the complaints with generative ai are these Wall Street Journal or these different news outlets sometimes are getting frustrated because they're having it's basically whatever was fed into the system is getting rejected, you know, is getting kicked back out. And they're saying, hey, that's technically copyrighted information, right? Because it's basically these engines are just almost spitting it out sometimes word for word without any type of credit going back to the source. But uh, when you put them in these engines, that would get flagged also as. The content came from these sources, right? It, mm-hmm. it partially came. It partially came from these other sources, so that could be a good investigative tool on the legal side. Is to go, you know, not only are we checking it for how much of this is generative AI, but also for where other places that that content might might come from. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing to think mm-hmm. about. And then I think, of course, even stepping further back, and I've said this before, but we often, it's being talked about in a very binary way for the most part. Mm-hmm. It's generative AI created or it's human created. And and we're already seeing that it's being folded in together and being mm-hmm. more hybrid, so similar to what you said, but it's only going to get more and more integrated. So we're, we're not right. even aware of it. So I, it, 
it, it's nearly like the technology is going to get so sophisticated over time and so embedded in how we do things. We're not even going to think about it. And think about it. And maybe it doesn't become, maybe it becomes a moot point at that level, but it, the technology is only going to get better as we go, it's, as you know. Right. I started this research a few months ago and, and get into it and document stuff. So I've just got to push myself through to, I wanted to find some more document sources, like we were talking about structured sources and then get an article, get a report posted on it. But at the end of the day, a little fun fact was, and I think I brought this up already, but, you know, OpenAI, who makes GPT, had their own detector, right, They were that they were providing for a while. Well, I was testing it, and the GPT uh, detector couldn't even detect its own output, like 100% of its <laughs> own output. I thought you would find that funny and they ended up dropping the project but i literally took like three different documents <laughs> that were 100 percent gpt created and put it into the open ai detector and it's like a 20 percent probability this might be eight. i was like you just created it five minutes ago and now you can't so that wasn't real promising at the end of the day like i said i put quite a bit of time into just testing all these different engines but at the end of the day, most of them just fell off. They couldn't even handle the very basic detection between the two. But there were a few that if somebody really wants to play with it, are worth and want to see what will throw it off and, you know, mess with different combinations. There are a few that, like I said, stood out and, you know, could potentially be a tool down the road people use for something. Yeah, and that's interesting that GPT couldn't recognize it or OpenAI couldn't recognize its own thing. It's I, I get you know I guess when you download it, an an image from Dolly, it does have Dolly in the file name. But if someone changes the file name, like is it was it even looking at any of the metadata that came with it or anything? Or it seems like it would well, include itself as an author or something, but I guess not. So well, this is the next step that we need to do with the images is. If there's some kind of metadata in there, and that's why this uh, application was so accurate, we need to strip the metadata out of it, right? So if it was resaved as, let's say, a JPEG or a PNG, something different than what it is, then send that image through the detector. I think that would be the next step because mm-hmm. there could be some, there, there's clearly potentially some metadata in the images. I mean, there's no metadata, hidden metadata in the text, obviously, that you get out of a GP output because it's just text. Um, so, but the images, there could be some metadata in the image that's giving it away without this advanced analysis going on. Right. You would think that that would be, again, it would have GPT as the author, OpenAI as the author or something, but um, Mm -hmm. a lot more opportunity to play around with metadata, which always gets me excited, John. So, well, we are here at the end of the episode. I would love to hear your closing thoughts on what you're most excited about in the next year to kind of dig into. I think even though it's ad nauseum, everything about AI, I think I'll be interested in how the rulings go down and how people are going to adapt to some of the pain points related to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's interesting. I think we need to, I don't know that it's necessarily fun, but when talking to a lot of people in our collection, when we're doing collections, you know, there's a lot of pain points with uh, M365. So if Microsoft actually gets a clue and starts making some of those production sets, you know, easier to deal with and 
data gaps and stuff like that. So that's kind of boring, I know, but I think that those are things that people are feeling every day, you know, and like some of the issues that are are related to trying to fill the gaps and e-discovery productions out of the bigger bigger platforms. But again, I'm a I'm a big fan of just seeing how uh, rapidly all the Gen AI stuff is evolving and how many of the tokens, more tokens people are getting so that you could possibly ingest bigger e-discovery cases in them and get analytics from that. Uh, I think we're starting to play with the idea of doing some on-prem and like advanced case assessment potentially with AI down the road since we focus on collection tools. We've had some people bring that up. Hey, what if I just want to do some document summaries in place? If I want to point it at a, my Google account, right, or my OneDrive and say, hey, give me a summary of this. But I think something like that could be fun to actually investigate getting AI at the front of the line in the same way that we've been over the years getting data assessment tools at the front of the line. I think that could be fun. But what about you? I mean, I think you're right. I'm always very hopeful of the idea of our e-discovery is very still, I think, has that lingering, lingering tendency to be structured around that document attachment rubric of here's a letter and Mm -hmm. here's the attachment to the letter. And we're getting further and further removed from that, you know, now that we're dealing with hyperlinks, now that we're dealing with short form messages, now that we're dealing with so many other data sources. And I feel like what's a really smart way for us to tackle this that maybe what we've done in the past is isn't going to do it as well. What and maybe technology can help it. I think we're going to start seeing more and more non-text only native data sources. So a lot of voice voice Mm -hmm. messages, a lot of um you know image based content and a lot of these discoveries yeah multimodal exactly multimodal multimodal, so yeah and i think that if you start our e-discovery practice is very much text authored content first in that traditional style and i think if we kind of start looking at it from the different perspective and how do we tackle it there? Because every everything else kind of is lingering and, and catching up. But what if we flipped it? You know, especially if a company okay. is like newer company for companies that have been around for 50, 60 years. Yeah, it makes mm-hmm. sense. But there are a lot of emerging entrepreneurs out there that are in the new tech space. And the way they create content from a corporate standpoint is much different from the traditional style. So I think yeah. that you know, put our creative hat on and figure out how do we do this a little bit differently without without the old without, baggage. Well, and I think we're going to see more and more of the multimodal uh, summaries, right? So since images, photos, videos, all that stuff are frequently a part of discovery, that always in the past, not always, but even audio files, those were typically reviewed by human. Not that people didn't use transcription services to, to make them to text, but that's still not summarized. It's not something saying, oh, this is what this is about. And what I see the technology doing for us, and it's already doing this, is it is giving us a summary of large quantities of information, right? In a very concise snippets. And now that you know these tools have gone to multimodal op- options, I can see 
hey, this is a photo of this, right? This is a video of this. I, I see us, because our data is constantly increasing and we're constantly finding quicker, reliable ways to consolidate that and let us know what's in there, I do see that happening more and more, I think, in the legal space. And is that we're using these summaries as we gain confidence, as we know that these things are being handled from a permission standpoint, that it's on our server, it's not on some public server. I don't know your thoughts on that. I just think we'll continue to leverage that type of technology with all these different sources that we have to deal with. I mean, just think of mobile data. Mobile data is becoming increasingly asked for in litigation, and it is mm -hmm. an extreme pain point for individuals. They don't they don't mm -hmm. want to have their mobile data collected. A lot of times you can't be as precise with the collections as you can with email. You have to collect more and then assess and winnow down. And if someone says in a custodial interview, I really didn't use it for work. It really was personal or it was just hurting right. cats, making sure, are you going to go to lunch? Are you coming to this meeting? I could see something that, that does a summary and validates that fairly quickly without a full collection, just to so initial, initial additional information. So you don't have to go through all the time and costs and effort and then stress on, on the individual as well, because mobile data review is a very expensive thing to deal with. So I think right. that, um, and just again, it's really, it's where oh, people's yeah. most sensitive, confident, you know, that that's like their phone. Um, I I could see that being a, a great a great tool. A so. great area. Oh, great! I appreciate the yeah. feedback. And this has yeah. been fun. I've yeah, I love it. It's been too long. It's been too it long. Has. Have to, it has. It has. We have to. We have to do, do this more often. Yeah. So, well, John, thank you so much again for joining us here on the Cassian yeah, podcast. Absolutely. Um, I know I've learned some things for you, and I'm sure my audience has as well. And for everyone else, see you next time on Cassie and...